Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. It is another beautiful day. It is the 9th of the 12th. I'm actually recording this so early in the day, I don't know what the weather is like, but my view on this is any day that you're alive to complain about is a good day. Michael, how have you been? I'm fine, Gary, thank you. Still alive. You just keep ticking. I do, I do. A little engine that could. <laughs> Not so little. So, I was... A couple of things we're going to go through today. We want to talk about the uh, vaccine rollout that will be happening soon. More so about the way it's going to be done. It will be public, will it be private. Different countries are going different ways, but Michal Martin has uh, commented on it a little bit. There's also a proposed constitutional change so that they can change the working conditions of uh, TDs and senators. And uh, Chuck Yeager, the man who broke the sound barrier, the first man, I believe, to break the sound barrier, who's an American fighter pilot, has died. So we just had a, a brief aside on that as well. But like, what I wanted to start off with was uh, an apology I heard today. Yes. It was an unusual apology, Michael, in that it was made for a dead man. Well, it was made on behalf of a dead man, yes. By the dead man's family. Well, actually, that's a question really, isn't it? Was it made on behalf of the dead man or was it made on behalf of the dead man's estate, which still sells lots and lots of books written by Roald Dahl and makes lots of money out of it? Be deeply cynical, Michael, to think that someone would apologise for something out of a mere business interest. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And particularly because Roald Dahl was such a famously cuddly friendly type of man that wouldn't have had any kind of curmudgeonly or contrarian instincts that would have led him not to re look at this and say, you know what, that was wrong and I, I regret it now. So what's happened is, is Roald Dahl's family has, the, Roald Dahl the famous author, just in case you aren't aware of that, in which case you've got a fantastic vein of children's literature that's probably still enjoyable as an adult, but his family has apologised for anti-Semitic comments that Roald Dahl made in the 1980s, in early 1980s. And uh, when I heard that, I assumed it would be like some sort of throwaway comment. Uh, but what he actually said was, there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews. I mean, there's always a reason why anti-anything crops up everywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. Well, that's proper good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. And it's actually, it, it, it is a, one of, the, if you're going to do your top three classic tropes of anti-Semitism, that is, that's in there. It's the, which is, well, you know, there must be something to it. I mean, let's face it. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be the getting it in the neck from everybody for this long if they weren't up to something. Now, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it is the the original best form of victim blaming that you can get. Now, I'm not a fan of the phrase victim blaming, but this is the perfect execution of victim blaming. Roald Dahl's literary output was in some, if we could look at it and start to deconstruct it and start to see without having to sort of invent stuff, obvious anti-Semitic tropes and themes in it. Well, then maybe you could say, well, you know what? There's a side of Roald Dahl we haven't properly discussed, and do we really want our children reading that kind of thing? And that might be a reasonable discussion. But this is just the old, an old and recurring story, debate about what's the connection between the artist and the art, and to what extent do the moral failings of an artist impact on how we look at the art. Also, apologising for a dead person, other than the fact it's kind of pointless, it is, it, you're, you're, you're assuming you're onto yourself something, I, if they did it, they did it. It's their responsibility. Recognise it. Say you disagree with it. Say you disassociate yourself from it. That's not something we think. We think it's unfortunate. But, I don't know. It's T.S. Eliot. Okay. If we look at the great, the, the, the great sort of three great modernist poets of the 20th century, T.S. Eliot, uh, Pound, and Yeats. Now, there's no discussion about Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound was an anti-Semite. Ezra Pound was more than a, more than a touch philo-fascist. That's beyond it. Eliot, there are elements, significant elements of, of anti-Semitism. Yeats, I, um, I don't know. Are, are you aware of? 
accusations of anti-Semitism in, in Yeats? I think with Yeats it was more of just the general fascism, but not the anti-Semitism. But where do we go? What do we do with that? How You look at the work and you see the work, and if there are moral failings in the work, well, then that, that has to be... Caravaggio, look at, I mean, slightly different thing, but Caravaggio, I mean, he was not, he was not a poster boy. This is, Caravaggio is not somebody you'd listen, you'd listen and say, you know, children, this is what the kind of person you want to be. I thought you would have been quite supportive of Caravaggio, given how seriously he took tennis. He took tennis very seriously, didn't he? Uh, and there, for example, I mean, the reason that he has to go leave Rome and ends up, wasn't it going, he, he, Going to Malta, where he ultimately dies, is because he's fleeing from a murder charge in Rome, where he he murdered someone. Now, in one account, at least, it says it was in a duel associated with the tennis game, where he pierced his opponent's testicle with a rapier. Which I have to, I have to say, if it was done deliberately, that shows a, a level of hand-eye coordination which suggests to me that Caravaggio was probably a pretty good tennis player. Although, listen... You look at his paintings, you have to suspect that they're pretty good evidence that he had good hand-eye coordination as well. What's the best tennis pun if you've just impaled your opponent through his testicles? Um, uh, the obvious one would be new balls, please. <laughs> oh, that Caravaggio. <laughs> oh, that Caravaggio. Indeed. But I bring the story up, Michael, mostly out of a sense of um, of how it could impact on me. Because I'm not sure if you're familiar with the genesis of the Kavanaugh name and where it comes from, but it originally comes from the um, the man who invited Strongbow to Ireland. Dermot, Mac- Dermot McMurray Kavanaugh, he arguably down the road. led to the pretty immediate conquest of Ireland. And yes. Michael, if we start having to apologise for the actions of dead relatives... On a personal level, that's just not something I'm comfortable with. I tell you, you know, I I, I feel your pain. I, I have I have uh, there's a a friend, Donegal friend of mine who constantly reproaches me simply by the fact of being from Wexford and therefore an associate in some sense of Dermot McMurray Kavanagh, who was from Ferns, which is around what fifteen sixteen miles down the road from me, and that it was us. We were somehow involved in this collective guilt for inviting the Normans in. And you're you're an actual family member. Yeah, I just have an image of me and a lot of very burly men around me. Me saying, well, I'm sure the the relationship is very distant. I mean, maybe an entirely separate branch. And they giving a very detailed explanation of the uh, way Irish family names move through the line while beating me. a friend of mine who I won't name um, and myself have discussed talking about this notion of you know, inherited guilt and expiation and stuff that uh, we foresee a time uh, coming, particularly in the context recently, there's a, a new documentary, I don't know if you know it, saw it, on the famine. Oh, yes, yeah, called The Hunger. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've heard it is good. Yeah, and it, so the famine is now coming back into consciousness again and maybe... Maybe in the, in another twenty five years time when we're celebrating the bicentenary, what we'll see is a is across the plains in front of the Tara, all of the descendants of those people who came across the water from England, and had the land and took the land from the from the from the nation of the indigenous peoples, will have all of them will have to symbolically bring a potato, uh, or even because there's not so many of them. A basket of potatoes, and there will be a symbolic number of ten thousand of the indigenous people, and they will have to go forward and give them each a potato in an act of abnegation and expiation for the sins of their forefathers. It'll be the great potato giving. I mean, and I think it, I think it could be very beautiful, Gary. It is. It is good to hear that the Irish fashion or the Irish famine is back on vogue, because frankly, I think the people during that period probably had the figure for it. The figure first. Okay. I'm going to take a second to enjoy that one. The Irish was noted by people who used to go on walking tours of Europe, which was quite the thing at the time. This is the period before the famine. It was often noted the Irish were tall and and, and well built and fine figures, because of course the potato is the wonder is a wonder food, and if you ate enough of them and 
I think an average an Irish man at the time would eat something like 15 or 17 pounds of potatoes in a day, that they would get enough carbohydrates uh, and protein, because you get protein if you, if you, you get, there's protein in the potato and lots of minerals. And if you don't peel them, you get certainly plenty of fiber. And all you need is a little bit of fat. Maybe you might get from a touch of butter or something every so often. And it, so it was the basis of actually producing quite uh, reasonable uh, specimens, as long as there was enough potatoes. Now, of course, it didn't happen always. And there were regular famines before the Great Famine. It wasn't. That's why we call it the Great Famine, uh, because it went on for four or five years, and because it went, it was not just localized, but rather it was everywhere. And uh, anyway, yes, we uh, we had fi we were fine figures of people, but after the but the <laughs> why are we talking about this? Oh my God, why do you do this? I do say, if you want to read the best uh, account of the famine at the time, I recommend uh, Thomas Carlyle's book. Which he wrote as he uh, as he went across Ireland. Thomas Carlyle, really, yeah, one of the most famously clubbable men of his time, liked by everybody that met him, was Thomas Carlyle. What was the, what was the old joke that it was uh, God's greatest gift to the planet was that uh, <laughs> yeah. no, Thomas was, was and his a, wife yeah. had married each other, so that only two people may be miserable instead, yeah, of four. instead of four. I think it was it was a sign of God, sort of God's intelligence and munificence is that that Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle should find each other so that two people should be miserable instead of four. Yeah, he was, I think, loathed by everybody that met him. It's, I, I actually quite admire his take on the famine because he goes, Carlyle shits on the Irish constantly and then the famine starts and he's got a whole new thing to shit in him and people start going, Thomas, you can't say these. Like, it's so bad over there. You don't understand. And he goes, all right then. I'll go to Ireland. And he goes with um, Charles Duffy, the, the Irish nationalist, and he tours the country. And then it gets to the end and people are like, so, so Thomas, what do you think? Now you've seen this horrible suffering and degradation. And to quote in a manner which I think keeps all of the tact and you know, meaning of Carlyle's longer response, Carlyle basically went, fuck those paddies. Well, that was a that was a, a sentiment which was not uncommon at the time. A number of people pointed out that you know this was a, a good way, a bit of population control. There are far too many of them anyway. We were not much more than savages. One of the, the really brutal ones was Charles Kingley, the Reverend Charles Kingley, who wrote, who was very famous for writing the children's story, The Water Babies. He talked about how upsetting it was because to look at these white champ white chimpanzees um, because the fact that we were it was a common trope in 19th century i sort of anti-irish cartoonery and, and and literature to portray us as being ape-like or simian creatures certainly a step below the highly evolved english man but that it was to see see us as we were white chimpanzees so you get the double one in there it's a nicely anti-african racist comment in at the same time as beating and saying you know if they were black it wouldn't be so upsetting but they're white chimpanzees really awful to look at if anybody actually wants to read a history of it i would still say and i've read a fair few of them uh cecil wooden smith's uh work the the great hunger is a wonderful piece of narrative history um and still stands at the test of time if you want to get a real sense of it it's got a it's beautifully written it it's it's got she has the novelist's style to drive the story to hold grip the reader but she certainly doesn't she's not an embroiderer uh she, she did a lot of great research and it, it it gives you a good sense of it's as good as i i, I mean maybe an academic historian would just would, would tell you something else, but I think for a, a, a basic one book go on the famine, Wooden Smith's book is still as good as what you're going to get. And you know what, Gary, we're we're, we're speaking frivolously and flippantly here, but it, the other thing about I would I would recommend anybody reading about famine because the horror of the thing and the horror of the number of the people that were like Carlyle at the time is incredible. Now, having said that, there were lots of very decent English people who were horribly upset by the whole thing. Uh, I think we talked not 
not long after we started doing this podcast about the, for example, the the fact that there is no monument in Dublin or anywhere to the Rothschild family, uh, which I still think is uh, a missed opportunity. The Rothschilds were responsible both personally, but also they led um, a, a fund amongst uh, English Jews to for the relief of the Irish famine, which raised vast i mean at the time really vast a vast amount of money and i don't think it's recorded or anywhere and if we're going to if we're talking about you know people families apologizing for their 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 parents or their forebears did this would be an opportunity to thank the rothschild family for what lord lord rothschild did back in the 40 in the 1840s on racism i'm not actually sure carlisle was racist against irish people he may have just Hated them more generally. I think Rath R- R- Carlyle was racist against people who weren't Carlyle. <laughs> Did you ever read um, Carlyle's essay, "Occasional Discourse on the Negro Question"? Do you know what, Gary? That one I missed. That are you familiar with it? No. Okay, I'm not. so it come. The important thing on it, Michael, is two things about it. One, it's pro-slavery, and two, it comes up out in eighteen forty-nine. Now. 1849 is, give or take, 50 years after the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. So Carlyle waits 50 years and then goes, do you know what? Slavery. Did we give it a fair shot? I think we should bring it back. <laughs> I'm not being picky here. Is that 50 years after the abolition of the... Of, is that after the, slave tra- the abolition of the trade or slavery? So that would be um, the trade... In British colonies. So that goes around 1800, maybe 1805, that kind of region. But the actual ownership that was... Uh, so was it the 1830s, was it? I 1830s. Yeah, probably the 18, like at least 10, 15 years before Carlyle goes, what we really need now is a public discourse on bringing back slavery. The thing is, that, well, amongst, there are lots of things that are about that, that are about, I I thought Carlyle would have been sort of in the Adam Smith camp uh, economically. Maybe I'm totally off the mark on that. And Smith wasn't a fan of slavery. I mean, if nothing else, you know, other than morally speaking, but he said economically, it said he, he didn't think that it was an economic system that could that could stand up to to the commerce of the free man work trading for himself. This is this is um, this is where the phrase "the dismal science" comes from, Michael. It's actually yeah. in this a book. Even people who liked Carlyle up to that point, even his friends, were like, yeah. who would put up with the rest of Carlyle, which was, yeah. were like, no, you can't. You can't, no. No, no, no really. We no. got rid of slavery and we're not bringing it back. And apparently he just threw a bit of a hissy fit because he was convinced that when he put it out there, people would be like, you know what? You're right. Slavery was a good thing. What are the... Th- <laughs> To give the, to the to give the English their due, I mean, what drove the abolition of, of first the slave trade and then slavery itself throughout the empire was a moral impulse, and the moral impulse mostly of religious people, people Methodists and Quakers and others, that it was just wrong. And by the time you get well into the Victorian period, it's that it's a moral impulse which is driving it imperially. I mean. Livingston is in Africa because Livingston wants, and I know it's a bit later, but Livingston's in Africa because he's there looking at the slave trade in East Africa, which was dominated by Arab slave merchants. And one of the reasons the, the you find this, one of the reasons, we'll say, we won't say that there aren't other reasons, but that the British end up in East Africa is the destruction of the slave trade. There is a deep moral impulse here. One of the reasons why, even though Gladstone was personally, for reasons, friendly towards the conservative to the concept the Confederacy in the American Civil War, we know that there were there were tours made of the northern mill towns, the great cotton towns, who should have been, and the workers who should have been really uh, hostile to the to the Union because the. Their their source of cotton was being cut off. King cotton. This was the belief the Southerners had was they could cut off the supply of cotton to Europe, particularly Britain, and this would cause that there would be up, there would be uproar over this, and they would they they would come in and recognize the Confederacy. But I I think Frederick Douglass. I may be wrong about this. But I have a notion it was Frederick Douglass towards the the northern towns, but certainly there were me- representatives of the Union, and they were cheered 
to the rafters by the workers in the mill factories because they had, again, this moral impulse that slavery was just wrong. It's not to say that they weren't just racist in, as we would today consider the racist in their attitudes or their, or their impulses, but they regarded slavery as wrong. And yeah, I think Carlyle would, you know, the famous Martin Luther King's quote, which says the, the arc of history bends towards justice. Now, whether he was right or wrong, and certainly there was a sense in the 19th century that, that that was the definite, the arc of justice was heading away from slavery and towards emancipation uh, of of all men. And I don't, I think Carlyle was just way behind the curve on that one. I, I, you see, I can kind of see where Carlyle thought he could make the point, though apparently even he thought it was going to be ill-received. I think what people don't know about a lot of the anti-slavery stuff at the time, a lot of the people involved with it is, they were anti-slavery. The idea that black and white people were equal, outside of the more religious anti-slavery elements, was not really a runner at all. Like Some of the comments Abraham Lincoln makes about black people, and the ridiculous idea that they could be equal to white people, are would now be considered deeply, deeply racist. Oh. Oh, I, absolutely. But I, I, I would say, again, if you look at the language all through the 19th century, particularly a lot of the language around the description of the famine, you see racist and racist tropes tend to be standard. It doesn't, it's, they're not specific. You don't get, well, you may get little things that are to, to one group or the other, but the language that was, that has been, the late, the racist language used about people, the peoples from Africa were very similar to the ones used with the Irish. The Irish were they were they were unintelligent. They were simian. They they were evolved to a lower level. They were victims of their passions. They were incapable of being provident. One of the reasons that they were the way they were was because they they were not good at managing themselves. They were bad at the future. They were they were indulgent in. They would indulge themselves. They would give themselves over to to liquor and and to intoxicants. Even when they wanted to be nice about us, they would characterize and say, "Oh, but they're such wonderful. They're, they're so nar- colorful and narrative. They're great poets and storytellers and singers, and the music is wonderful." But there's that sense, even when they're being nice, that yes, but we're fundamentally these temperamental children that need the strong guiding hand of the, of the stable father figure to direct us because otherwise we just go off the rails. So a lot of the same racist tropes that you see about Africans, we see about the Irish. Then you've got the other kind of tropes. Jews get everything. Jews, I mean, they, we're talking about the, the anti-Semitism, uh, uh, which we started with. But the thing about the incoherence of anti-Semitism, on one hand, it's the you see this idea that Jews are this low this low culture which is bringing down the high Aryan culture and yet at the other time they're either too stupid or else they're too clever they're too dull or they're too brilliant you could never anti-semites can never quite make their mind up about how what kind of anti-semitism they're going to buy in either they're ruling the world or else they're going to bring the world down because they they can't aspire to the high spiritual intellectual heights of the pure Aryan soul I mean, Carlyle also didn't like the Jews, but then Carlyle didn't like anyone. <laughs> Save Mrs. Carlyle, and even then, not then, so like, much. It's like when Carlyle, like you read through his work and you can say something, you're just like, in a normal person, you'd be like, that's racist. But then you're like, it's Carlyle. I don't think I've ever heard him say a positive thing about anyone not from Britain. Gary, can I ask you a question, which if we have any listeners left... How did we get to Carlyle from uh, from the man who wrote James of the Giant Peach? Uh, the Jews. Okay, and anti-Semitism. On something slightly more positive, Michael. Vaccine roulettes. Hooray for the vaccines! You know, isn't it gas? I mean, gas. I mean, I'm not the one How many people, and perfectly reasonably, were saying, that it would be at least 18 months to two years before the first one, and then the effectiveness would be whatever. And there was no way anybody could know that we were going to have two vaccines which are going to go through their trials. And we assume we're now talking about two and possibly three. The Oxford, the, the results of the Oxford vaccine have been published in The Lancet. 
and they're looking good. Gary, do you notice that even now there's a certain reticence in certain commentators? Well, okay, yes, fine. There is a vaccine, and yeah, I suppose yeah, it has come quicker and all that. But you know what? It's not going to change anything. It's fun. Yeah, vaccine's not going to be the solution people think it is. Vaccine's not really going. We're still going to have to live with it. You're thinking, really? Really? Why Why can't we just at least indulge ourselves for a moment to say, you know what? Science has done this wonderful thing. Scientists have done this fantastic thing. They produce these vaccines in record time. They look like they're going to be super effective. And it means that there is actually light at the end of the tunnel. Can we just appreciate the light for a moment? So on the people saying it would likely be, yeah, it could be any amount of time and we wouldn't know the effectiveness and it was unsure if we would get a vaccine. I am not aware of the numbers, but it was a popular position. Uh, but I only mention it because I was in that camp. And it would appear that I was wrong but I would make the point that at the time, given the information available to us, it was the most likely outcome. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that. My my point is that can we not enjoy being wrong? Can you can you can you shall we be happy at being wrong? No, it is a it is a good thing. I only mention it just to say that I was wrong and that and just you know, I think it's important, Michael, to say when you're wrong, particularly when there are recorded instances of you being wrong, and if you don't admit it, unscrupulous people might tell people that you were wrong and then you look like a fool. I absolutely agree. I think you're absolutely right. And when it happens, I will do it. L- little bit of comedy there. Mio Martin was in the doll today and he was asked about the vaccine rollout. How is it going to be rolled out? Now, he said to the doll, this was in relation to a question from Alan Kelly. Ali, Alan, Ali? Alan <laughs> Kelly had asked him to uh, confirm if the vaccine rollout would be... Are you just, I can hear you giggling in the background. Ali Kelly. Ali Kelly. He sounds like a mattress salesman. Ali, no. He, I'm sure he's a striker for Dundalk United. <laughs> Sorry. No, go on. Fine. Laugh at my mistakes. Okay, no, fine, go on. So Alan Kelly had asked if the rollout was going to be public and overseen by the state. And Michal Martin, of course, came out and said that uh, that would absolutely be the way that would happen and it wouldn't be, uh, non-state bodies wouldn't be allowed to sell the vaccine privately because the the entire project would be jeopardised were that to happen. Why? Um, or how? It's not really clear. He says that, um, that they want to make sure they have records of the administration of the vaccine so they can monitor its effectiveness, but that in no way conflicts with a private company selling it. So anyway, the idea here is that there will be no two-tier system here. There will only be public health and everyone will get uh, equal access to it and that's all lovely and that's all great and you know it's the fair thing to do. Unless, Michael, Unless other countries in the world don't take that stance and say that you can pay for the vaccine, in which case anyone of sufficient wealth who is willing to travel would simply be able to go somewhere else and get the vaccine, thereby skipping months upon months of queues. Now, I know India has said in certain provinces it will be sold. Uh, Australia hasn't confirmed it, but from the way they're talking about it, they, I mean, you're hearing people say things like, well, of course it will be for sale. We have a free market economy. It will, of course, be publicly provided, but you know, there'd be nothing to stop people from selling it once it is uh, allowed into the territory. It's har- hard to imagine that it won't be for sale in the United States somewhere. It is, it is rather hard to imagine it won't be. So anyone who has sufficient money can still access the virus or the, um, the vaccine ahead of anyone else. So there's still a two-tier system. Yes, but Gary, it's, it's very, it's a, it, it, there's an important distinction. In the order of the two-tier system, you'd have two tiers where you'd have one tier, which was quite large of the people who could buy them. If you move it like this, it's only the people who are really quite wealthy who could do it. So, you know, that which is much fairer. I mean, the other thing is, in neither system, does it impact on the majority of people if it's privately available? As long as it's still public available, you have, you know, your laid out release schedule and you'll get it whenever. Yeah. But people will be able to go ahead of you in either situation. But you're right, Michael. Now it won't be middle class people 
Now it'll just be really wealthy people, or upper middle class maybe, depending on how cheap you can get a flight to, let's say, America or India or anywhere closer to home, really, that says they'll say maybe some of the Eastern European countries. That'll be interesting. I mean, for example, we know India has a very large pharma section where they produce generics, and, they, they, and it's probable that a lot of the, in, in, the, the they will be they'll be move over to the production of these vaccines. There be there might be production that's available that they can do to boost production. Brazil also a big pharma section producing a lot of generics. Um, I'm sure there are other places as well that do it. You know, I'm you know holiday in Brazil if you're up to it. Why not double up? Couple of weeks in, couple of weeks on the beach, couple of weeks in Brazil on the beach. Get the vaccine, come back. Why not? I don't. I don't. Okay, fairness. Now, it strikes me if 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 you're a person who manages who who comes along and gets COVID sometime in the next couple of months before the vaccine gets to them, who would otherwise have been able to position to buy it had it been here, and they catch COVID and they die, it's not massively fair on them. They could die or be seriously injured. So, I mean, it might be fair, Michael, but I don't think it's moral. I suppose the question is, I want to, I just want them to explain to me how it will practically disadvantage anybody. Say we put, I put this case, say you have a number of private hospitals in the state, right? Mm -hmm. And they get together in some kind of consortium and they manage to locate a supplier, someone who is willing to supply a supply of the vaccine, which is recognized and controlled and regulated and safe and all of the things that we that they have they would have to, to to be and they get some of this and they import it into the state and then they as respectable hospitals where all the doctors are registered and they obey all of the state protocols that are required for people to practice medicine in the state they say okay anybody who wants to get the vaccine here can do so at x price how does that actually disadvantage anybody else in in will how will that mean that anybody will receive a vaccine later in fact surely that would mean that they're going you're going to take people out of the list out of the queue and bring people forward and make it quicker for them this is where you have to consider this in a in a proper fashion so from a financial perspective anyone who's willing to pay for the vaccine privately doesn't have to take the vaccine from the state, which means the state doesn't need to pay for the vaccine for that person. So the state is in a, a better financial position, which you can then reinvest into the health service or into vaccines or others who might have more slowly gotten it. And obviously, if people can get the vaccine quicker without impacting on the public dispersal of the vaccine, less people can get sick and less people can get ill, which would seem to be good for, you know, that as well. But here's the thing, Michael. Let's say you put in a private program and they're able to give you a vaccine with, let's say, three days notice. And then the state says you'll get a vaccine in four months. That might look bad on the state and on politicians. So if you simply remove that entirely, simply say, no, no, you can't do that. Well, then the rollout is just the rollout. And there's nothing that you can compare it to and say, well, why can they do it 10 times quicker? But to be, in, to be fair here, I mean, do we, we don't really know yet if they're going to stop people doing this, are we? do we? I don't know enough about the law in this area to be able to say, or the regulatory environment to be able to say, well, yes, they can do this and then they can stop its sale or if there would be legal issues there. I don't know. And I, I'm not going to claim to know because I don't. So it could be that it's very easy for the Irish government to procure these drugs and then stop their sale through licensed medical practitioners or their prescription by licensed medical practitioners. But I'm not, I'm not asked. I'm not. I'm not talking so much about their, whether or not legally they could do it, but their intent. I mean, do they do they really want to do that? I, d I don't know. If they think it threatens the vaccine supply then I can see them doing it. However, given the scale of vaccine production we're expecting and the numbers that are being taken by global orders, I wouldn't expect it to... I mean, it's not going to be a statistically significant increase if there is private demand from somewhere like Ireland. 
So I, I don't know. I think it's just because they didn't want to give Alan Kelly something to do. But it, it kind of feeds into this discourse. I've been hearing more and more recently about private healthcare. And I've seen doctors and, and uh, both practicing and academic come forward and say, well, we need to have a one party uh, or one tier healthcare system because that's the fairest system there is. And every time I hear it, I, I, it just makes me think less of the person saying it because they're absolutely right. It would be the fairest system. The problem yeah. is, is the fairest system, we, we assume fairness is good. If you have a situation where people on the private healthcare uh, plans can get better healthcare and you move them to the public healthcare system, they will suffer a reduction in health. So let's say there are cancers that uh, you can get a test for in the private healthcare system in two weeks, but on the yeah. pri- in the public healthcare system would take three to six months. If you move the private healthcare system, uh, patients over, you will increase the length of time for any one of them to be diagnosed with something which could kill them, which will uh, has to lead to increased deaths and increased suffering and increased uncertainty and increased stress. Now, you can say those levels will be small. You can say whatever you want about them, but you would expect those levels to increase just as a matter of mathematical certainty. And so when I see people saying things about fairness, it seems like they've put this very abstract notion above the actual impact it will have on people. You're saying that fairness is an abstract notion. I, I go I, 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 a bit further than that. I don't understand what it means. To me, I understand what fairness means in the context of a game of football or something, in the sense that there are rules. And if, if you break the rules, you succeed in breaking the, the rules of the game, you can say that's not fair if if you succeed in doing it and you escape sanction. You get away with it because the referee didn't see it, where well, that wasn't fair. But in an ethic, a discussion like this, I genuinely don't know what, fairness. What that's not that it's not fair. It's not fair that he earns this and I only earn that, which is part of the similar kinds of discussion. It's not fair. I don't. I don't know what that well, means. What they what they mean when they say fairness, I think, is is pretty easy to pick up. They mean that no one should receive better treatment than anyone else, which is a bit of a problem. But I'm sorry, Gary, that's not that's not fair. If surely, you no, know, this one this was one of the criticisms. Not to be flippant about it, but this one was one of the criticisms of the way that Soviet economies worked in in Eastern Europe and the in, and in Russia, where. You, you got if you got you 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 did job A and you got job you did job B, you got the same remuneration even if job A meant that you had to go to work in a factory five days a week and job B was for example there were people who were employed as salters and their job was to salt the pavement in front of the number of houses in the winter. Now that would that was obviously dependent on the amount of snow and ice there was and therefore there were significant amounts of time when that job didn't have to you didn't have to do anything and on the face of it it would seem unfair surely on the face of it it's unfair that people would receive the same benefits for less effort is it fair that people who have more effort and more ability and contribute more and create more and do more and are more productive than other people get the same as other people surely that's fairness if you want to talk about fairness if i go out and i add to this the to the, the the wealth of my community, I, I invent something that makes people's lives better or I provide services for people that they didn't have before and because of those services they have a, a better standard of living. That not it fair that I should be rewarded for that? I, how far do you want to pull this? There are hospitals now which have been set up in India, uh, they're charitable institutions where doctors, uh, surgeons practice They've done this the basis that each surgeon does one thing, and we know that one of the principles of successful success in surgery is they get a surgeon who who does the same thing over and over and over again. So some people that only do knees, some people that only do appendectomy, some people that only repair Achilles tendons. That's what they do, and they become very good at it. And they use, and they get people come in from the west, people who have money, and they come from the west, and they they use these services because their the quality of care is high, but also they can do them. They they can be dealt with very quickly for conditions that are maybe not life-threatening but have a significant impact on the quality of their life maybe like a hip replacement or something like that they can come in they can get it done quickly they get it in comparison to other countries maybe like the united states they can get it done cheaply and they use the money that they generate from this to, to give free health care or subsidized health care to poor people in india which seems like you know a reasonable deal but 
that's in the in the way that we're talking about fairness that's unfair now that's unfair it's unfair that people can use their money to go abroad to do that i just i mean i would have thought it's fair to give people every chance possible to avoid uh, to either deal with illness or to avoid illness that could harm them or their family or their friends and i just i do wonder michael if let's say some of the doctors calling for this if this situation was to materialize and someone in their family were to be sent for a test that they knew would have been two or three times quicker in the private sector which they had successfully abolished and uh, something was found to be terribly wrong and that person died of it whether they would find it terribly comforting if someone told them well yes but this was the fairest option available. Yeah. I somehow think they'd be more likely to start swinging. I think that it would be a perfectly normal thing if you were a doctor in a situation like that and you were aware, because you were a doctor, that there was a guy in one of the clinics in Dublin or wherever that was could do that next week, that you get, you pick up the phone and you'd say, listen, I want or, if, frankly, if you knew that the outcomes in the Mayo Clinic for this or the oncology department in oh in John Hop Johns Hopkins were the, were the world beaters and you could get them in there if you could you could pay it. Surely that's what you do as a human being, and people would not regard that as being a bad thing. You're just taking care of your family. That's that's the thing though. There in in the same way that in the vaccine we can't have a single tier system because it will be available somewhere. All you can do is lessen the extent of that second tier. In the same way with public healthcare, you can. You can have a single uh, universal healthcare system in Ireland. You can remove all private healthcare. You could legally do it. But at the same time, you'd still have a two-tier system in that people with sufficient wealth can go abroad for treatments that they simply cannot get here or would not be covered or would simply take too long. So you yeah. still have that two-tier system. All you do is you lessen the amount of people who have access to it which again would seem to be a net increase in human suffering. So I, I, I said, every time I hear a doctor talking about it and why we need to do this in the interest of fairness, does just strike me that they are now valuing that concept far more than the individual lives it will impact. And that historically has not been a good thing. It's kind of le led to some rather dark places. It has. As regards the subject we're talking about, the vaccines... We, we, we'll see what they, they end up actually doing. We'll, we'll give them that. However, if they do go down the line that it's only going to be provided within the state system, unless they can produce reasons why to do others, to, to allow people to provide access to, to this privately, that would demonstrate that this would negatively impact on other people, that this would have a negative impact on the ac on access of other people who don't have money, then I'm not saying that would be a, an apodictic argument, but even at least it would be a reason. And, and and up to now, I can't see I can't see how doing this will will do anything except help people within the public system. It'll take people out of it. It'll take pressure off it. It'll move people up the list. It'll it'll speed up the rate at which numbers of people within the country are vaccinated, which we and we're, we're told that. As the greater the number of people who develop immunity, the more that will affect the capacity of the virus to be transmitted and will lower the R rate. And all of this sounds to me like good news. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, you're right, Michael. If people are saying this privately, they won't be able to access it from the private stockpiles that the government will have brought in, which means they'll have to pay for its import anyway, which means effectively there are more vaccines in the country than there would have been if it was just the state. Those people don't need to make use of the state's resources. It would be faster, it would be more cost-effective, but Michael, it isn't fair. And so we will go down a route which will most likely lead to additional deaths and illness, because it's not fair, and we're not a country prone to actually, you know, doing things well. So we will give a facile reason of well, we need to, you know, keep an eye on it, or you know, this isn't the sort of thing you can trust to private industry, mm. and they will be largely, if not totally, unchallenged on that, and that will be simply it. This seems to me very much like some. Uh, you ask a child, or why are you doing this, and the response comes, "Well, cause." So far, that's the that's the level of it. Now, let's 
give them they give the, the good people a benefit of the doubt maybe this won't happen maybe they will even if this is their intent now maybe they will change their minds i will i will bet you that what we'll see is just more statements on this and each one will just talk about fairness and that'll be it that'll that'll just be like hook line and sinker it is unfair for people to be able to skip the queue by uh, putting money towards it and therefore wealthier blah 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 fairness that'll be it that'll just that's what's going to happen and that's there will be no debate about it it's just what's going to happen oh, well we shall see so just as a, a very quick note um i so chuck yeager as i said the 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 american fighter pilot who was the first man to break the uh, sound barrier, has died. Don't really want to talk too much about his life, although he did lead quite an interesting life. But what I thought was interesting, and I'll put a link to this in the uh, bottom of this podcast, was an article written by um, an Indian man who eventually became an admiral. He, uh, weirdly enough, he was in the Navy, but he was uh, was seconded to the Indian Air Force for a while. And he destroyed one of Chuck Yeager's planes, when Chuck Yeager was on the ground during, shall we say, some uh, limited hostilities between Pakistan and uh, India. And this chap blew up one of Yeager's planes, something which Yeager took very, very poorly. But years later, this guy wrote um, a short piece on it and what had happened afterwards and what he had heard Yeager's reaction had been. So I just thought it was an interesting little insight into um, Yeager and also the people who uh, dealt with Jaeger. So I've included it below. It's just a, a short little piece, but I thought it was interesting and I haven't seen it come up anywhere. I just remembered reading it a while ago, so I thought it might be uh, might be of interest to some of you anyway. Very good. I should re- we, we should read it with, in, with interest. Just to, to close out the show, Michael. So this, this news broke, I think, uh, today or yesterday, or within the last couple of days anyway. And it was that Michal Martin is considering bringing forward a constitutional amendment to give politicians the right to take maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Because he said, you know, there needs to be progressive progressive policies in place, Michael. I'm sure yes. that was wonderfully comforting to the Finnefall TDs thinking that they're about to get slaughtered at the next election. Yeah, after they handled the nurse, the, the student nurse pay so well. So the... Um, I've been trying to look into this, and I haven't got the full picture yet. So I, I could be wrong on this, but what I think happens here is there's no maternity leave as such, but you're on salary, so they can't take that away from you. So you get your salary where you to take time off for your child. There's just no formal maternity leave. However, that when you would go back, if you wanted to claim the expenses for the days you weren't there, you would then need to provide a sick pay. Or sorry, a, a sick search, a sick note. Yes. And if you were to provide that, well, then you could get your expenses back because TDs need to log a certain amount of days in the dollar year in yes. order to get their full expenses. And then for they, they lose those expenses on a percentile basis, depending on the amount of days they are under that requirement. So if you were out of maternity leave, you could bring in your sick note and they would be counted as days where you are present, Michael. Now, Gary, can I ask you a question here? Because I, I get I get confused here. TD's expenses. Now, maybe I'm asking a question you don't know the answer to, and then I apologize for asking you on the on the air. TDs get vouched expenses and unvouched expenses. Is that right? Now, is it, am I right in thinking that if you go for the unvouched expenses, you don't have to provide details or receipts or anything like that? You, but you get a lower amount. And if you, if you go for vouched expense, a vouched expense, you can you can get you get them back, but it's to a higher level. But your vouched ex, your unvouched expenses you get as they, uh, they uh, if you like they come up with the rations. They're automatic by being present in the doll on the day. Up, I think it's one hundred and twenty. If you're present one hundred and twenty days in the year, you get your full allowance of unvouched expenses. You don't have to, as it were, justify them. You just you just get them. Is that right? It, yeah, it depends on what kind of allowance you're talking about, because you have things like, uh, in this case, you'd have the travel travel and accommodation allowance. Right. So that's for, you know, your costs going up to a lesser house, your overnights, your... Um, I think it also includes constituency travel, unless you're a senator, in which case you don't have a constituency, which may come as a surprise to some senators. 
so you don't get constituency travel. Then you have things like the um, public representative allowance, which is, you know, office rental, web hosting, the public facing part of your work. That is vouched. And uh, there actually are the PSA, um, the Parliamentary Standard Allowance, that's published online on the DAL. I'm not sure if all of the allowances are. I don't think they all are. So this, what I think is happening here is that this relates to uh, travel and accommodation allowance. So if you're on maternity leave, you're not counted as in, so you're not getting your travel and accommodation allowance. Now, that allowance does change. I mean, on ge- ge- differently, if you if you live you live in in in, in on Merrion Square, you you, get, you it's different to being in Kerry. The lowest distance you can get. So, if you're under twenty five kilometers away from the Dal, you can. If you're a TD, I think it's nine thousand, and then if you're a senator, it's less. But if you are, I think the highest band is 350 or 306, it's 360 kilometers. Now, if you are on that band, Michael, yeah, you are making, I think it's about 35,000 if you're a TD. Right. So it is not a small amount of money, but you do have to check in, I think, 150 days during the year. Sorry, I think okay. it's, it's 120 days. But it's calculated on the expected cost for 150 days. Now, we're kind of going into the, the reads on that. That's not oh really... Oh, God. This is starting yeah. to hurt, hurt. This is the sort of thing I find interesting and no one else does. Or at least not enough people to sustain a podcast. So what I think is, is happening here is there's a complaint that um, if you're out on maternity leave, you can't get travel and accommodation allowance. Now, I would have the view on that, that if you were out sick... Or if you're out on maternity leave, if you are not in the doll, Michael, you shouldn't get the travel and accommodation allowance at all. No, no, I, I take your point. I think, on the other hand, I think one of the points that somebody was making was that if to get the allowance, then you have to produce a, uh, you have to produce a cert from your doctor saying that you were ill and you couldn't attend. Now the thing is, I don't know if that is is what people have done historically if they were pregnant in the doll. I don't think there have been very many instances because of the lack of women historically in the doll and because of the lack of women of a certain age in the doll therefore not that many pregnancies but one one objection which i think is a reasonable one and a correct one that if you're pregnant you're not sick it's not an illness and if it would it is wrong and is offensive to say that you have to go and say you're sick if you're not if you're pregnant to to get the thing now whether or not Sick or pregnant, you should get expenses for which are given to you on the basis that you're doing something which you are not in fact doing. That's another question. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know maybe a traditionalist on this, Michael, uh, maybe a hardliner, but I think we shouldn't give people money for things they don't do when we've agreed to give them money if they do it. On on this, I've been reading newspaper articles and they're saying, well, if you take time off to get a baby, you have to go in and provide a sick sir. A sick note, and my certificate to Hoove, though. I mean, there might be a policy that that's required, but I wouldn't have thought that would stand up legally because if you're an independent TD, Michael, who are you giving the sixer to? I know the clerk of the doll. I mean, whoever is who, whoever's in charge of say paying rations, I suppose, in the civil service. None of the uh, none of the people who I have seen say this have said how the system works. So it's entirely possible that it is a requirement of the clerk of the doll or whoever, but it just, the the way I'm reading it, as I said, I I put a couple of questions in. So when we get those back, I'll know exactly what's happening. So I, I could be slightly wrong on this. So it's possible. I just want to inform you of that before I say it. It looks like this is just to claim expenses and expenses that I don't think you can legitimately claim or shouldn't ethically claim perhaps would be the more accurate way of saying it because apparently there are quite a lot of people who can claim it if you aren't if you aren't there what what need do you have a travel of accommodation if you're not using travel and accommodation i suspect part of this is that tds and senators regard these expenses not so much as expenses but rather this is part of the way that we just we have decided to pay a public well, no, I, I think here. that's that's exactly it these people don't see these as expenses that they are given uh, to cover things particularly considering that that this is an an unvouched expense you just get it depending on how far you have to drive or you know however you get into the doll 
True, I, what is the phrase, Michael? Uh, shortest applicable route? Yes. Uh, which, if you ever want some good fun, there have been some wonderful examples of politicians finding that the shortest applicable route just takes them over, you know, some of the um, some of the distances. Just, you know, brings you from maybe 24 and a half kilometers to 26 kilometers, which is, what was it, Michael? You get 9,000 if you're within 25 kilometers. As soon as you go over 25 kilometers, you're up to 25,000. That's the substantial jump from going from Stillorgan to Dawkey. Yeah, so a couple of people, including people who have been ministers, have taken, shall we say, a slightly meandering direct route. Well, you know what, Gary? Sometimes there are, there are roadworks that go on a very, very long time. Decades in some cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It, it just looks like they consider these expenses to be their salary, and therefore they have an absolute right to claim them. And Well, yeah, because I think that's because, in a sense, that's, that's the way, not just here, but that's the way here and in Britain and other places they have done it. We know that historically people don't like politicians giving themselves raises. Now, I will observe Irish politicians in comparison to other politicians are quite well paid. Uh, they're they're not towards the bottom of the rankings, but one of the things they have and they did this in Westminster also is rather than rather than give a raise and we do, people do this in business as well they say okay we're not going to put the we're not going to put our salaries up salaries are going to be frozen however we're going to increase your per diem we're going to increase your lunch and vouchers we're going to increase your overnight stay you you you're going to get you're going to get an IT allowance. And your IT allowance is not going to be vouched. So, you know, if you have a, a computer already and you have a phone already, you know, even though we're going to give you 5,000 quid or whatever, say, to buy. So it's, it, it's, it's seen as a way of topping up the salary without actually having to go through the terrible nightmare of, say, of the newspapers reporting on CD salary increases for a week and a half. Now, listen, I take the point. Even if that's what they're doing, that's not what they have they've done. They say they've, these things are officially, and that's what they will say if you ask them. This is expenses because we have to do this, and it costs us money. And if you don't do it, why should you get it? If if you were in a private company and you had a salary, but you also had an expect an expense account, and you were on leave and you were getting your full salary for being on leave but you didn't have to go anywhere you didn't have to travel you didn't have to go to hotels you didn't have to entertain clients i imagine in a private company you wouldn't get to use your expense account michael if if there was a private company and a female employee took time off for maternity leave and got paid their salary throughout and then submitted a substantial mileage claim that wouldn't be accepted that would probably be considered fraudulent and grounds for sacking. Well, yes. But I, I think the this, I think, just, just on the actual idea of maternity leave for women in the doll, I think is absolutely pointless. And it's not because I don't think women should get maternity leave. It's not because I have any views on maternity leave at all. It's for this very simple reason. There is not a female member of the doll who will take however long that maternity leave is if they wish to ever get elected again. They may not go to the doll, but they would have to continue doing constituency work because Irish voters are kind of like piranhas. They just keep biting out of you and they just always want more. And if you let them, they will strip you down to the bone. I agree with that point, Gary, but I would say that, that I think that that doesn't, that, that, that if we're looking at this as a mechanism for making it more attractive and more possible for women to be in the dark, which I think we should do, if for no other reason than if we're successful at creating, at, at making it a more accessible and a more welcoming place for women to work in, that that might be a way of, of at least it won't be, but it might be a way of avoiding the imposition of quotas and targets and list systems and and all that. But yes, they will have to work. But the point of maternity leave is not necessarily that you don't actually have to work. Because even if you're in a private company and you're you're at home, and the reason you're at home because you, you want to be at home with your child for that first period of time, which is very important, and there are lots of things that's very difficult to do distance. 
you may still actually do a certain amount of work from home. You may you may do a similar distant work, and at least if you're in your constituency, you can you can still you can work that around. You can have clinics in your home or near your home. You can you can take phone calls. You can have meetings and still be with your child. However, if you're traveling, if you're in in Donegal or May or or or, or Cork or pretty well anyway, and you're going up and down to the doll you effectively can't have the kind of the, the kind of time uh, with a newborn that you would otherwise have whereas yes you're in your, you're going to be doing work in your constituency but you're still going to be able to have a, a much much more a much improved uh, opportunity to spend time with your, within within your new baby and to bond and to and to have that experience than you would otherwise have. So I don't think it, yeah, I, I think your point is, is, is correct. They will have to work. They will continue to do constituency work because otherwise they will. Irish voters are incredibly demanding of their public representatives. Uh, they will demand their presence. They will demand solutions. They will demand that they're there. But thing is, a lot of them don't care about them being in the doll, actually. Mm. A lot of TDs, if they were never in the doll, they never spoke in the doll. As long as they got the, as long as they got them on the housing list, as long as they got the medical card, as long as they got the door fixed or the painting job done, they would be happy with them. What possible change could it make that they could not already do? I don't think they can be censored if they were to. If a TD was to decide, I'm just not going to the doll for nine months. I'm not going to do. Well, he wouldn't get he wouldn't get his expenses. No, he wouldn't get his expenses. But he's not travelling to the dolls, so I don't think he deserves his expenses because he's not engaging in that process. But I don't think there's any means to censor them. They have been elected by the people. It's it's the people's fault. So how is that any difference here? If 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 a TD has, well, I mean, obviously there's a moral difference between having a child and just deciding I'm not going to go to the doll. But if a female TD has a child and simply says I'm not going to go to the doll for four months. Or I'm not gonna. I'm gonna take however long off. I'm just gonna uh, focus on constituency work and and the child. I don't think there's anything currently in play that could in any way interfere with them. I mean, the only people I could see having a problem with that might be the parties. In which case, that's a matter for them. No, it's not. They're not essential. The the question is a question of remuneration, simply, and it's a question of the expenses on the on the bald face of it why should you get expenses the expectation as i in my opinion is the expectation that why they should get expenses is because they see expenses in a different way well in that case then changing the constitution we would effectively be changing the constitution enable to enable in order to enable politicians to effectively defraud the country i'm not sure i like i've worked on referendum campaigns before michael and i'm not sure that's a winning message I would craft a different message if I was being asked to help in the communication. You'd finesse it, would you? I would. I would look at other ways of presenting this. Um, I would have maybe pictures of a child with a daisy in a sun in a sun-filled meadow and say, v- v- you know, vote vote for families. You know, I, I think you are right. I think they view this as a wage that is being denied them if they are not there to uh, to to claim it. Now, I will say this, that you can go on to the Dolls um, website and you can find how many people have claimed how many sick days throughout the year. Now, they won't release the names of those people because they say their privacy has to be respected. I say, fuck that. Release all of the names. Because Uh you're a public representative. It's public money. If you're claiming, let's say, 100 sick days in a single year, maybe that might be good. For people to know, Michael, not that I'm suggesting that claiming, you know, a hundred days has ever happened, although it has. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh. Obviously, somebody's very ill. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, listen, Gary, it wouldn't be Ireland if we didn't have a referendum to look forward to. But I, oh, I just, I, 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 as I said, I think you're right. I think they view this as a wage that would be being denied them. I just think they're effectively defrauding the country and uh, that uh, they should not be given it. And uh, we should, you know, have punishments and things for people who would seek to claim expenses that they are um, unvouched expenses. You, you know what? We we could go back to an old Soviet or an old fascist, Italian fascist solution to this problem. I don't know how popular this would be, but we'll run up the flagpole, see who salutes. Perjury laws? No. Bonuses for babies. 
all elected representatives, male or female, who have a baby while they are a public representative, get a an ex gratia gift from the nation for having had the baby. No, I think the if we're going to do that, I would go the Hungarian route, where if you have four or more children, you don't pay income tax for the rest of your life. That could be a way to do it too, um, you know. I mean, I remember reading that and I was just like, four, no income tax. Hmm. It would also be a, an incentive to people to, uh, to go into higher, to get into higher paying employment. Because, you know, once you've had the four kids, obviously it's going to be expensive, but you, think, you want to get the best out of them, don't you? So you're 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 going to try and get the the, the highest paying jobs. Oh yeah, and we it makes sense because we need an endless supply of children to feed the Ponzi scheme that is the pension system. Oh yes, I was, I was hearing all about the pension system today. Not good news there. No, the pension system is um, how would I put this delicately? Fucked. Yes, I think that's the technical term. I think that actually, from talking to the people I know in the field, that has now become the technical term. They no longer talk about how bad it is in exact terms. It's just become a generalised as fucked. Although I did have a chat, uh, I remember having a conversation last year with an economist about this, and he 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 did have this to say. He said, "Oh yeah, we're fucked," but there is there is there is good news. What's that? He said, "There are other places, lots of them, far more fucked than we are." Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have a very young population, yeah. but uh, never, never. It, Dear listener, never imagine you're getting any sort of public pension. I mean, you might. Don't expect to survive on it. I'm I'm collecting my I'm keeping my my collection of first edition Christmas stamps. I'm relying on that to keep me in my old age. I mean, euthanasia is going to become a very popular option as well. I'm sorry. Every time you say that, I just think you're saying youth in Asia, and I think why are we talking about the youth in Asia? Anyway, that's a much darker conversation. If we're talking about people going to see euthanasia in their uh, elder years. I think it's time to draw a, 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 not a, I wouldn't say draw a veil over this. I think this is a time to put the lid on the coffin of this particular podcast. Actually, I haven't heard anyone talk about euthanasia. I think Gary Glitter killed that trend. We won't be back on Friday, but Gary, I think because we're going to have a we're going to have a we're going to have an interview that I uh, did recently with uh, Dermot uh, Dorgan, which is very interesting. And but we will be back hopefully on Sunday. Uh, to wrap up the week with our usual light-hearted um, Sunday miscellany as we troll through the news of the week. But until then, and if you ha- if you haven't managed to get yourself one of those black market UK vaccines, stay safe, mind yourselves, and we'll chat again on Sunday. All the best. <laughs>